You're listening to Calvin's Institutes. Lesson 23. These online lectures and study guides have been created to provide listeners all over the world the opportunity to receive theological resources online for free. Gifts received from supporters like you help us continue this exciting work. Please partner with us so that millions all over the world can continue to receive and share in the life-changing message of the gospel. Click on the Give Now button on our homepage. That's worldwide-classroom.com. Thanks for your support. Well, we're coming uh, to the end of a long road and almost to the end of the institutes. Uh, you can take a certain amount of pride, I would think, in knowing that you've read through most of this. Not every last word has been assigned, and maybe someday you'll want to read the rest of it, but um, not many people actually read through all of the institutes. Not many Presbyterian ministers have read through all of the institutes because I've asked them. And uh, they say, well, I've got that on my, um, in my plans to someday um, read through the whole of the institutes. I think people read parts of the institutes uh, fairly uh, frequently, but uh, to just uh, go through it all, or almost all of it, is um, unusual and um, an accomplishment. So congratulations. We'll have one last time on Thursday looking at the last chapter, Calvin's treatment of civil government. All of Book 4, as you know, has to do with the church down through uh, chapter 19 and then chapter 20, the last chapter, has to do with uh, civil government. Quite a large section of the Institutes in Book 4 has to do with the sacraments, beginning with chapter 14 and going through chapter 19, Calvin's treatment of sacraments in general, then baptism, then the Lord's Supper, and then his refutation of the Roman Catholic Mass and then his refutation of the five other so-called false sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church. So today we'll look at uh, sacraments. This is going to be pretty brief because Calvin goes into a lot of detail here and I need to um, keep my remarks uh, brief in order to um, get a general idea of what Calvin is dealing with in these chapters, but uh, we'll have a go at it and see what happens. Let's pray. Words of John Calvin. Grant, Almighty God, that as you have in various ways testified and daily also prove how dear and precious to you is humanity as we enjoy daily so many and so remarkable proofs of your goodness and favor. O grant that we learn to rely wholly on your goodness, so many examples of which you set before us and which you would have us continually to experience, that we may not only pass through our earthly course, but also confidently aspire to the hope of that blessed and celestial life which is laid up for us in heaven through Christ alone, our Lord. Amen. Calvin's um, teaching on the sacraments is heavily shaped by Augustine. We expect that sort of thing now because almost all of Calvin 
it's heavily shaped by Augustine, but uh, also influenced by Bucer, the man with whom he worked for three years in Strasbourg, influenced by Luther, and to a certain degree influenced by Zwingli, but certainly stamped with uh, Calvin's own originality and uh, with his own way of putting together uh, the various ideas that he sets forth in these chapters on the sacraments. His definition, he does give several. I'll use uh, one that's found in 4.14.1. It's a kind of uh, expansion, he says, of Augustine's short definition that a sacrament is a visible form of an invisible grace. Calvin says that fine idea. The sacrament is a visible form of an invisible grace, but uh, Calvin thinks that is too brief. And uh, even though it's right and good, it needs to be developed a little further. And so one of his... Um, definitions is this, an outward sign by which the Lord seals on our consciences the promises of his goodwill toward us in order to sustain the weakness of our faith, and we in turn attest our piety toward him in the presence of the Lord and of his angels and before men. So let's take that uh, definition and work with it uh, for a bit. You'll notice that in the very first uh, sentence of chapter 14, Calvin says we have in the sacraments another aid to our faith related to the preaching of the gospel. So he links immediately uh, the sacraments to the preaching of the gospel. Sacraments can never stand alone apart from the word. Preaching is uh, aid to our faith, and uh, we have discussed that as one of the true marks of the church, and another aid to our faith is the sacraments, and uh, the sacraments are related to the preaching of the gospel. In Calvin's uh, definition, he begins with the idea of an outward sign. Remember, book four deals with the external means that God uses to invite us into the society of Christ and to hold us therein. Book three, he's discussed in great detail those internal operations of the Holy Spirit. And now in book four, he discusses the role of the church, place of the sacraments, the function of the civil government as external means of blessing that God gives uh, to us. So the sacraments, two of course, baptism and the Lord's Supper, in Calvin's view, are outward signs. Why does God give us these outward signs? Calvin says God gives us these outward signs because of the weakness of our faith. These signs are for our benefit to help to nourish and encourage our faith. 
by the sacraments God provides first for our ignorance and dullness and then for our weakness. So having heard the word preached, we still need something else. We need something more, not different and not separate from the word, but something to nourish, encourage, strengthen, aid us in accepting the promise, believing the promise, and being assured by the promise that we hear in the Word. And the sacraments function then in that way. Calvin says that God condescends to lead us to himself by these earthly elements. It's not that the word is weak and something else has to be added because the word is not sufficient. The word is sufficient, all sufficient, powerful. But we're weak. It's not that the word is weak. But Calvin says it's because we are weak. We need these aids, these external outward helps. And secondly, Calvin says, we have these outward signs because we cannot be welded together unless we're bound in some partnership of signs or visible sacraments. So for two reasons, God gives us these external aids to strengthen our faith, to encourage us, to assure us, and then to bind us together as one body in Christ. Baptism does that. Lord's Supper does that. So you see the two functions of the sacraments in Calvin's thought. To courage, strengthen, bless, nourish, feed us spiritually, and then to cause us to be welded together in one body. Let's look a little more at uh, what Calvin says about sacraments in general. Chapter 14 is sacraments, and then chapter 15 and 16, specific uh, application of these ideas to the two sacraments of the Christian church. The sacrament, Calvin says, is a seal of the promise. Promise is given to us in the Word. We hear it in the preaching of the word. It's the promise of God's mercy toward us in Christ, in which our faith rests. And the sacrament seals that promise. It's joined to the promise as a sort of appendix. It's one of Calvin's many images here. You have a a book and then you have an appendix. And the sacrament is joined to the promise as an appendix is joined to the book. It's not going to tell us something different. It's the same message. It's the same Christ that is being presented both in the word and in the sacrament. But it is joined as a sort of appendix with the purpose of confirming and sealing the promise itself. It just underscores the promise. Repeats the promise. And as we both, you might say, hear the promise and then see the promise, because following Augustine, Calvin liked to use the idea of the sacrament as a visible 
word. We have an oral word as we hear the sermon. And we have a visible word as we see the water and as we see the bread, as we see the wine, and as we participate in the sacraments as we will describe those in a few minutes. The sacrament then is secondary and supplementary. It adds nothing to the promise as such. The preach word is sufficient of itself, and the sacrament can never stand by itself. Calvin really felt that the sacrament, the Lord's Supper, should always follow the preaching of the word. Ideally, in fact, he had hoped in Geneva to have the sacrament of the Lord's Supper celebrated every Lord's Day. But uh, he could not have his way in this. Calvin, even in the church in Geneva, could not always dictate or determine what was going to happen because so much was controlled by the state and he had to settle for monthly communion and then later quarterly communion. But it was Calvin's thought and desire and ideal to have weekly communion. It's rather strange that uh, in Reformed history, the Reformed tradition, when it was free to select the frequency of the Lord's Supper, tended to follow more the state requirements than Calvin's own personal ideal, although... Presbyterian churches are moving toward more frequent celebration of the Lord's Supper now than in the past. The church in Scotland, for instance, it was customary to celebrate the Lord's Supper once a year. And uh, that seems far cry from what Calvin had hoped um, would come to pass. But uh, the sacrament, for all its importance, is secondary and supplementary. It cannot stand by itself. It always must accompany the word. But uh, it is not unimportant uh, because it does confirm and seal the promise. Repeats the word. Dramatizes the word. Illustrates the word. What was the the reasoning behind limiting it? Jay's question has to do with why did, say, the Church of Scotland uh, observe the Lord's Supper so infrequently. I think you need to remember two things. One is the church, a local church in Scotland uh, in the post-Reformation period, generally celebrated the Lord's Supper once a year, so it was infrequent, but it was... um, very extensive when it was celebrated. For instance, um, people would start meeting early in the week and you would have meetings, different services leading up to uh, Communion Sunday and preparatory service on Friday or Saturday. Communion Sunday would last all day Sunday and there would be a Thanksgiving service on Monday. So it's like a whole week of um, services surrounding the actual celebration of the communion on Sunday. And I think um, with the 
amount of effort and time that went into that. Churches tended to um, do it only once a year. I should say, too, though, that people in Scotland receive the Lord's Supper more than once a year because these communion occasions were uh, popular and visitors from other churches would come. So even though you would have the Lord's Supper celebrated in your own church only once a year, uh, you could go to a dozen neighboring churches and receive the Lord's Supper during their communion occasions. I think uh, the infrequency was a problem. But the uh, emphasis on preparation uh, was a good thing. Uh, We tend to be able to celebrate the Lord's Supper more frequently today, but um, we don't have the similar emphasis on preparation. I've heard uh, some people express concern for weekly sacraments because it would be coming too routine and common Mm -hmm. uh, for pastors and churches that do that. What is the experience and what can pastors and elders do to retain the significance of that weekly for the people? The question is, uh, if we have the Lord's Supper every week, as Calvin wanted to, does it not become too routine and too common? I suppose it, it could, but it's almost like saying if you preach the gospel every week, it's going to become too routine and, and too common. And uh, to put it um, to put it in a analogy, I think we would say something. I would say something like this: you know, the gospel is very good news. So is um, the message of the sacraments. And really, good news doesn't become routine and common. I mean, if you have somebody's telling you really good news, you know, you've inherited a million dollars. Um, you don't get tired of hearing that. <laughs> you, want it, you want to hear it over and over again. Be sure it's true. Be assured of it. But I, I think ministers and elders do have a responsibility to find ways to preach and teach and administer the sacraments that do bring uh, fresh ideas and um, renewed uh, assurance and confidence um, in the service itself. There has to be um, a sense of uh, the wonder of what we're doing. And one way to um, avoid a kind of a routineness and uh, dullness is, is just read through Calvin again. When he gets into describing the Lord's Supper, uh, he uh, reaches um, a point of almost, I think we would say, ecstasy. And then he finally says after he has worked at it for a long, long time. Still don't completely understand it. But I'd rather experience it than understand it. So there's something uh, wonderful about it uh, in Calvin's experience uh, and in his teaching. Yes. Seal of the promise, sacraments of visible words. I mentioned that uh, already. And also means of grace. Uh, The point here is that uh, for Calvin, the sacraments are not merely signs of grace, but means of grace. In other words, Lord's Supper 
in the elements in the Lord's Supper and water in baptism in baptism don't merely point to grace but are channels of grace, instruments of grace, means by which God gives unto us grace. God uses the sacraments, Calvin says, to sustain, nourish, confirm, and increase our faith. He nourishes faith spiritually through the sacraments. So, as you read Calvin through these chapters, you get the idea, certainly, that uh, this is not just um, a sign. It's more than a sign. It's a means of grace, not merely a sign of grace. Calvin, on this point, is much closer to Luther than he is to Zwingli. He's concerned about uh, Zwingli's view. He says this teaching that uh, the sacraments are merely signs of grace weakens their force. They're not only signs and confession, but also aids to our faith. So it's not just mental, it's not just thinking something, it's receiving something. Or you could say it this way, the sacraments are not just a representation, but also a presentation. It's not Calvin's words, but it's my way of kind of summing up Calvin's thought here. Sacraments are not merely a representation, representing something, but a gift themselves, a receiving. Not only a showing, but a giving. That's what he means by sacraments as means of grace. But, and this needs to be said too, if he is opposed to Zwingli's views, say Zwingli's memorialism in the Lord's Supper, and we'll talk about that in a few minutes, as being uh, too much a, a representation and not a presentation, too much a sign and not enough of the reality of the gift of grace in the sacrament. Uh, he is certainly opposed, on the other hand, to the Roman Catholic view that the sacraments in and by themselves confer grace. It's God who confers grace. He's the giver of the gift. And if he uses the sacraments, which he has promised to do, then we thank him for it. But the sacraments do not inherently possess the means to nourish, bless, strengthen Christian. The water, even though Calvin can use the expression occasionally sacred water, he doesn't mean that the water takes on a kind of um, mystical power in itself. And uh, Calvin certainly doesn't agree with the Roman Catholic view of transubstantiation, that the elements of the Lord's Supper are transubstantiated into the flesh and blood, body, and blood of Christ, and so have in themselves some kind of inherent uh, power. Calvin says this teaching attaches to the sacraments some sort of secret powers, and the sacraments do not promote or confirm faith by themselves. So, not merely signs, but not um, 
inherently capable of conferring grace by themselves. Yes. Does anyone feel that, or think that uh, you could not make the the distinction, the, form, the first distinction, of uh, between a, a sign uh, and a means, without falling into the uh, the second problem that if you say it's not a sign, then it has to go as far as the only option that's left is that it actually confers grace. Is that why? You I think that is why Zwingli is is concerned to be as far away from Luther as he can because he thinks Luther has. Uh, gone too far toward the Catholic point of view. There is, however, quite a bit of uh, recent uh, work on Zwingli that indicates that we may have misunderstood Zwingli somewhat. In other words, Zwingli may not have taught a mere memorialism. In other words, in the Lord's Supper, you remember the death of Christ. This do in remembrance of me. That was his text. But that to us sounds quite uh, cerebral. And uh, some scholars think that Zwingli's idea of memory has much more power than the way we use the word memory. I think um, more needs to be done on Zwingli to see if um, he is actually closer to Calvin than we think. But Calvin is still, even in 1559, concerned that Zwingli's view is too weak. You know, Calvin and Bullinger do sign the Consensus Tigorinus, the Consensus of Zurich. Bullinger is Zwingli's successor in Zurich, in which the two views, the Zwingli-Bullinger view of Lord's Supper and the Calvinist view are brought together. The big question is, did Calvin compromise there? Is it a true meeting of the minds, or is it a kind of papering over of the differences but uh, that consensus uh, resulted in one Reformed faith rather than two. We have the Lutheran tradition, and we have the Reformed tradition. I think if it had not been for the consensus Tigorinus, we would have had three Zwinglian, Calvinist, and Lutheran. I'll say a little bit more about that when we come uh, to the Lord's Supper itself. Sacraments do not confer grace, nor do they promote or confirm faith by themselves. That is, there is not inherent in the elements that which can accomplish the work of nourishing us as Catholics taught. The sacraments always work in connection with the Word. Let the word be added to the element, and it will become a sacrament, Calvin says. And always in connection with faith, receiving uh, the sacraments in unbelief nullifies the value of the sacraments, not the force of the sacraments, the the sacraments are still powerful, but the value of the sacraments for the individual is lost if there is not faith. It is understood only by those who take word and sacraments, Calvin says, with sure faith. 
he has a helpful illustration of this in 4.14.17. You might uh, remember that is the illustration of uh, wine poured over a vessel, but the vessel has no mouth to receive it. It's a kind of a jug or a jar without an opening. You pour wine over it, still wine, but it doesn't enter the vessel. And Calvin says the same thing is true when the sacraments are received without faith. They conferred no advantage or profit without being received by faith. And the sacraments work, and this is so important for his view of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper in connection with the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit, as we have seen in book three, who is the agent of our faith, repentance, Christian life. And in book four, it's the Holy Spirit who uses these outward means, but it's the Holy Spirit who blesses, strengthens, and aids us. The sacraments properly fulfill their office, Calvin says, only when the Spirit, that inward teacher, comes to them. So without the Word, without faith, without the Holy Spirit, the sacraments are strong and powerful, but invalid because these three are required for the sacraments to perform the work that God plans for them to perform. Now, all of that uh, has to do with the first part of Calvin's uh, definition. You'll notice that he goes on to say, and we in turn attest our piety toward God. And uh, that was an emphasis that Zwingli made very strongly. Not sure I want to say that's the primary emphasis in Zwingli, but it's certainly a strong emphasis in Zwingli that um, the sacraments are our profession to each other and to the world that we belong to God. Baptism, Lord's Supper our badge, our profession, our testimony. And uh, Calvin does include that in his definition and from time to time mentions that. But I think Calvin's emphasis is far more on the work of the Holy Spirit in using the sacraments to nourish our faith than on our receiving the sacraments to testify to the world and to one another that we are in Christ. But that is a valid idea as well. And so Calvin does come to that in 4.14.13 and elsewhere. Okay, let's look at the two sacraments now. Calvin on baptism and Calvin on Lord's Supper. Two chapters on baptism. Calvin, as we 
would expect, rejects the Roman Catholic position, that is that baptism washes away original sin and regenerates the person. That, according to Calvin and the Protestants, is not the correct view of the Bible. That meant, for the Roman Catholics, that without baptism there was no salvation. Calvin greatly values baptism and would not for a moment countenance a person ignoring baptism. But he does say this, from this sacrament, as from all others, that is, from the Lord's Supper as well, we obtain only as much as we receive in faith. So baptism is not um, ex opere operato. It's not an automatic means of grace that produces salvation. If faith is not there, then nothing is there as far as we're concerned. And uh, Calvin even goes further. He says, when we cannot receive the sacraments from the church. Say hypothetically, we're in such a place where there's no church, we're too distant from it, or in times of persecution we're not allowed access to the sacraments. If we cannot receive the sacraments from the church, the grace of God is not so bound to them, but they but that we may obtain it from faith by the word of the Lord. In other words, we can get the value of the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, without the sacraments, if we are forbidden to have the sacraments. But that can never be used as an excuse to um, ignore the sacraments. But Calvin doesn't tie the two together like the Roman Catholics do. Without baptism, no salvation. Calvin would say in extreme situations, when there is no baptism available, then God's grace can be given directly through the word without the sacraments. So, there's no such need in Calvinism for emergency baptisms took place in the Roman Catholic Church. A baby was being born and when it seemed likely that the baby would not live more than a few minutes, then um, anybody could baptize, including the midwife in the Catholic uh, tradition because of the urgency of applying the water to the baby if there would be regeneration. But uh, for Calvin, there was no emergency. If baptism could not be properly performed, then God is not bound to the sacrament. You might say that we're bound to the sacrament, but God is not. Which means we cannot ignore it. We cannot refuse it when it is available. But uh, God's grace is not tied to the sacrament so that it is not available in any other mode. It can 
be given through the word without the sacrament if necessary. Calvin's position over against the Roman Catholic position is that baptism is not a means by which the inherent value of the water cleanses away sin and regenerates the person. But Calvin, again, as he has already made clear in his chapter on the sacraments in general that we just looked at, said baptism is more than a token or mark by which we confess our religion before men. It is that, but uh, it is more than that. It is a means of grace instituted by Christ to bestow blessing uh, on the believers. More than a testimony, an actual means by which we receive God's blessing, God's grace, God's assurance, we are strengthened, helped, and assured by our baptism. You know, Luther, so strong on this, and when Luther was being assailed by the devil, as he was on many occasions, sometimes his last resort was simply to say, but I've been baptized. That was Luther's rejection of the temptations of the devil. Uh, Calvin doesn't say it exactly that way, but he says this in 4.15.3, Therefore, as often as we fall away, we ought to recall the memory of our baptism and fortify our mind with it that we may always be sure and confident of the forgiveness of our sins. I think this idea of assurance plays a big role here in Calvin's view of baptism. We, times of temptation, times of um, spiritual dullness, to remember that we have been baptized. And that gives us hope and encouragement that we can be sure and confident of the forgiveness of sins. Roman Catholic Church, of course, added penance as the second plank, as it was called. Baptism is the first, but the assurance of baptism can be lost by sin, and then penance, confession, penance are necessary in order to recover what is lost in baptism. Calvin calls that a fictitious sacrament of penance. It's not needed. We have everything we need of the promise in our baptism. We don't need penance as a kind of follow-up to baptism. Calvin, um, I won't do too much uh, with these ideas, but uh, Calvin certainly is not a Donatist. He doesn't... um, He doesn't insist that baptism to be valid must be administered by a holy person, by a a minister of uh, the gospel. 
but um, if that um, ordained minister is not living the life that he ought to, if there's hypocrisy there or fault there in some way, uh, that does not invalidate the baptism. It's what the Donatists, you remember, back in the 4th century. You can think back to ancient and medieval church history, taught. But um, Calvin uh, rejects that. Augustine rejected it, first of all. It was a battle that Augustine was fighting himself at his own time. And uh, Calvin quotes Augustine in his dispute with the Donatist, Whosoever may baptize, Christ alone presides. So we don't have to be concerned about the authenticity of the minister, the spirituality of the minister who baptizes. It's 4.15.8, whosoever may baptize, Christ alone presides. Or here's an illustration of the same thing in 4.15.16. If a letter is sent, provided the handwriting and seal are sufficiently recognized, it makes no difference who or of what sort the carrier is. We get the letter, we recognize the writing, we know it's authentic, and uh, we don't have to worry too much about the postman, whether he's a spiritual man or not. He's delivering the letter, and the minister is applying uh, the water, but it's Christ who presides. For that reason, in Calvin, there's, there's no second baptism. He was even uh, willing to admit that Roman Catholic baptism was valid baptism. Calvin did not require people coming out of the Roman Catholic Church into the church in Geneva to be baptized again. His view, baptism in the Trinitarian name was valid, whoever administers baptism. As far as mode is concerned, Calvin really wasn't concerned about that. It could be immersion. It could be pouring. It could be sprinkling. These details are of no importance, he said. As long as water is used, Calvin felt that that satisfied the sacrament. Although Calvin did hold that the original mode in his view, was immersion. But the fact that he did not immerse people in Geneva was of no concern to him. The amount of water, the way in which water was administered, was incidental uh, to the sacrament. And if immersion typifies certain aspects of baptism, sprinkling typifies other aspects of Baptism just as validly. And so for Calvin, that was not a issue. Where is that? The, uh, mm-hmm. Refers to the... Uh... The mode. Yes. Um, for 15-19, these details are of no importance once he has listed uh, the different uh, possible modes. For 1519, if you want to go further with that idea, you can also look 
at the commentary on Acts 8, 38. And they both went down into the water. That's Philip and the Ethiopian. Calvin says, here we see how the rite of baptism was administered long ago. The whole body was immersed in water. It has now become the practice for the minister to sprinkle only the body or the head. A small difference in ceremony, however, ought not to lead us to divide the church or disturb it with strife. It's kind of a remarkable statement, isn't it, when you think of the division in the church between um, Baptists who insist on immersion and others who have other modes. It has divided the church, uh, but uh, for Calvin, it uh, should not. If um, mode was inconsequential for Calvin, infant baptism was not. Infant baptism was extremely important. In fact, chapter 16, which is his chapter on infant baptism, is longer than chapter 15, which is his chapter on baptism. I don't think length uh, always means everything, but it does show Uh, the concern uh, that Calvin had uh, with infant baptism. His main scriptural basis is the unity of the covenants. And Calvin thinks that infant baptism protects that teaching. And rejection of infant baptism would destroy that teaching. The Anabaptist, in order to escape the connection between circumcision in the Old Testament and baptism in the New Testament, tried to make the Old Testament as carnal as they possibly could. This was an earthly covenant. This was a political covenant. It was really not a spiritual covenant. And for Calvin, as we know from our earlier study strongly holds to the unity of the covenants. What the Old Testament teaches, so does the New. What the Old Testament displays, so does the New. There are sacraments in the Old Testament. We have the same sacraments in the New. And consequently, circumcision is linked to baptism And Calvin, over and over again, emphasizes that God established a covenant with Abraham, which included children, and there was a sacrament, a mark of that conclusion, which was circumcision. The church is the covenant community now, and children are included in this community as they were included in the old community. Calvin could not really conceive that the new covenant in any way could be less full, less inclusive than the old. If the old covenant promised blessing to the children, then the new covenant would too. The Old Covenant had a place for the children, then the New Covenant would too. If the Old Covenant had a mark 
for the children, uh, the new covenant would too. I think, although Calvin doesn't say this, I think he would think this way. You know, often people will say, well, show me a, a place, a verse in the New Testament that commands infant baptism. And it's hard to find one. We have passage in Colossians that seems to link circumcision and baptism. And we have household baptisms, but there are questions about that. But I think Calvin's basic argument here is he doesn't expect a verse to say what has always been done in the plan of God should continue to be done because of the linkage of the old church and the new church, the old covenant and the new covenant. He would expect something like this. If the children are not to be included, then there would be a verse in the New Testament that would say, just as you circumcised your children, your male children, in the Old Covenant, so now circumcision is changed to baptism, which is the sacrament of initiation, but don't apply it to children anymore. Children for the old, but not for the new. But there's no indication that the Bible is moving in that direction at all in Calvin's thought. So, children are included. Of course, a child who is baptized, an infant who is baptized, hasn't repented and doesn't have faith. Baptism is into the covenant community. The parents in the church take the vows in the place of the child. And uh, Calvin says it doesn't mean that there is no repentance and faith, but the child is baptized into future repentance and faith. Calvin makes the point that the blessings of the sacrament are not always tied to the moment of the sacrament. So the full blessing of baptism is realized later in the life of the covenant child. Yes? You were making the point about uh, baptisms being valid regardless of who administers it. Mm -hmm. Um, And a little while ago, you, in another class, you made the point that uh, Calvin did not think it valid for, or appropriate for, let's say, a midwife to administer baptism mm-hmm. as the Catholic Church would mm-hmm. prove that. How do those two things yeah. go together? Well, let's see. Baptism is valid. Well, you see, Calvin, in his chapters on officers and ministers of the church, has argued that um, there are certain people who are called to preach the word and administer the sacraments. So they have to be properly uh, called and instituted uh, for that office. So that restricts it right there. Midwives are not ordained as ministers. But uh, once you have an ordained minister, then the baptism that he performs is valid, whatever the inner spiritual condition of his heart. 
he's a hypocrite or backslidden, it doesn't affect the validity of the baptism. But uh, Calvin does restrict it to uh, ordained officers in the church. Reformed tradition has followed him in that, but not all traditions do, of course. There's another question. Yes. What was the uh, practice regarding an infant that looked like it wasn't going to uh, live beyond a few days after birth? Was there not for the reasons of the Catholics who were baptized, but would they still apply this rite of initiation into the community, even if for a temporary period of time? The question is, uh, in the Reformed community, would a baby that seemed to be dying be baptized? Yes, but was it viewed as an emergency? Not the baby died almost immediately before the child could be brought uh, to the church and properly baptized. It was not um, was not viewed as a disaster. God has his way of reaching people apart from the sacraments, if that is necessary. But uh, I'm not absolutely sure how quickly the Reformed Church would want to baptize the baby, but babies were baptized early. It was not like a year old. It was weeks old or a week old or maybe days old. So all children were baptized very, very early. But if the baby died um, within a few minutes or an hour or so and could not be baptized, it was not, uh, it was not viewed as a big problem. I heard uh, two students at Concordia discussing this one day when I was over there in the library. And a um, child of, of one of these students was to be baptized. And uh, the student wanted to wait a week or two so his father or somebody could come, but was very disturbed about the idea of waiting a week or two in case the child might die or something happened. So they were going back and forth on Know, should the child be baptized this Sunday without the father or next Sunday with the father? And um, I thought, uh, well, we don't have to worry too much about that kind of thing at least. And um, baptize infants as soon as we can. But um, there's no fear that if the baby should die in the meantime that all is lost. I baptized my grandson last uh, August. He was um, about six months old then. He had been scheduled to be baptized in April, but both he and his mother came down with chickenpox, so could not uh, baptize uh, Ian in April when he was three months old. So we had to wait until August. My wife says, if we wait much longer, it'll be believer's baptism. <laughs> she has high regard for his intelligence. <laughs> okay, let's uh, look at the Lord's Supper now. I know this is going fast through all of this and doesn't answer all your questions about uh, baptism, but at least perhaps gives you the lay of the land as far as Calvin's thinking is concerned. Rejection of the Roman Catholic position, I think we could extend that a bit. Um, 
to um, point B there, Calvin's position agreed with Zwingli that after the ascension, Christ retained a real body of flesh and blood located in heaven, but rejected his memorialism. In other words, Calvin says, yes, Zwingli is right. Christ's body is in one place. It's in heaven. It's not on earth. It's not in the elements. It's in heaven. But uh, he was uncomfortable with the idea that uh, Zwingli's main concern in the supper seemed to be his saying, we do this in order to remember uh, what Christ did for us. We do this in remembrance of him. But uh, Luther had his text, too, uh, this is my body. And uh, Calvin appreciates both of those texts. We do remember the death of Christ on the cross and the supper, but we also feed upon him here and now, and not just uh, on his spirit or his divinity, but we feed upon his body. Calvin is not hesitant to say we do eat his flesh and we do drink his blood uh, in the Lord's Supper. And he agreed with Luther that there is a real reception of the body and blood of Christ. Just said that. You know, actually on one occasion it was at Rakensburg, the colloquy of Rakensburg in 1541, that Calvin signed the Augsburg Confession, which is an amazing thing, with its very Lutheran statement of the Lord's Supper. Calvin signed that. Not sure all of his thinking, he's able to signed the Consensus Tigorinus, which is on the Zwinglian side, and he's able to sign the Augsburg Confession, which is on the Lutheran side. I don't think uh, we would view Calvin as wishy-washy. He never comes across that way, or as not being able to make up his mind. But uh, I think what this means to me is that Calvin's view of the Lord's Supper is quite subtle and nuanced. And it partakes of much of what Luther says. But he never goes as far as Luther to accept the idea of the ubiquity of the body of Christ. He agrees with Zwingli there. If Christ's body is ubiquitous, that is, it is everywhere, then it's not a real body. And Calvin wants to protect the teaching of Christology in the Council of Chalcedon that uh, the body of Christ is a real body like our bodies. We're not ubiquitous in our bodies. Neither is Christ. His body is in one place. It's in heaven, the right hand of the Father. Luther, of course, uh, agreed with that, but to him the right hand of the Father meant everywhere. Where is the right hand of the Father? Luther would say it's everywhere. Where is the right hand of the Father? Calvin would say it's in a definite place in heaven. So the difference comes down uh, to the location of the body of Christ.
Calvin said Christ is spiritually present in the Lord's Supper, but uh, that is a rather simple way of saying uh, something that is rather complex in Calvin. Maybe the best way for me to uh, talk about this in just um, the few minutes we have left uh, is to uh, show you some charts that I have drawn up which illustrate um, the different uh, views and uh, we'll best understand Calvin's view as we contrast it to others. Uh, here's the Catholic view. Catholic view, of course, is transubstantiation. You're familiar with that word, which means that what starts out as bread and wine changes into body and blood of Christ uh, when the priest uh, pronounces the words of the institution. This is my body. This is my blood. And no longer do you have... Um, bread and wine, but you have body and blood, and when the person receives the sacrament, what they receive is not bread and wine, but body and blood. It's the Catholic view. It's for that reason that uh, you have a reserved sacrament, because once a certain amount of bread and wine are changed into the body and blood of Christ, uh, then you can't uh, just throw that away. It's sacred now. And the sacrament is reserved to be used later or to be carried through the streets in the uh, festival of Corpus Christi, body of Christ, where uh, people actually bow and worship uh, the elements now transubstantiated into body and blood. Just reading uh, last night a, a little booklet I picked up at a Greek Orthodox church, which actually was arguing for the safety of the common cup, as the Orthodox use common cup in an age of AIDS and other fears about uh, transmission of, of diseases. And this um, was arguing that it. It's quite safe, and nobody has to worry about it. After all, it's body and blood of Christ, and that's not going to poison you. And uh, another interesting point, though, that I had not thought about was this, that in the Orthodox Church, uh, the priest consumes all that's left over. You know, once the common cup has been passed around, uh, then whatever is left, the priest drinks it all. And... Um, this little pamphlet was arguing that our priests are quite healthy. <laughs> but um, there's the Catholic uh, view. We could look at uh, Zwingli's view this way. The bread and wine remain bread and wine, and what the recipient receives is bread and wine. But uh, as the recipient is receiving the elements of the Lord's Supper, he or she is meditating upon the death of Christ. That would be the memorialistic view, memory. This view in memory of me. Well, Calvin felt that was lacking. He rejects the... Roman Catholic view is, is heresy, 
Uh, he rejects uh, Zwingli's view as very weak. It's not that we don't do that, but uh, Calvin thinks there is much more there than he understands Zwingli as having presented. In the consensus cigarinas, Bullinger has moved more toward Calvin. Calvin perhaps moves a bit toward Bullinger, but consensus cigarinas is not the Zwinglian, not the traditional Zwinglian view, or Calvin could not have signed known to it. Now, here's Luther's view. And Calvin has a lot of respect for Luther's view, but uh, he doesn't embrace it exactly. Luther's view is that you have bread and wine. They remain bread and wine. There's no transubstantiation. But uh, in, with, and under the bread and wine is the body and blood of Christ. That was later called consubstantiation. That was not a term used in Luther's time. But um, what the recipient receives is all of this. As you eat the bread and wine with your mouth, you're also taking into your mouth the body and blood of Christ. So in, with, and under the bread and the wine or the body and the blood. Calvin did not agree with that because that implies the ubiquity of the body of Christ. The body of Christ is wherever the Lord's Supper is being celebrated. Luther felt the body of Christ was everywhere and that the means by which we have access to the body of Christ is through the Lord's Supper. So body of Christ is present here in this room because Christ is omnipresent, Luther taught in his body as well as in his spirit, but we would not have access to the body of Christ unless we're celebrating the Lord's Supper uh, in this room. Calvin's view, I've drawn like this. Christ is in heaven. The body of Christ is in heaven. Of course, Christ is everywhere because he is God and God is everywhere. But the body of Christ is in heaven and it's the body of Christ that um, we're concerned about uh, in the Lord's Supper. Particularly the Lutherans, they felt that um, the reform just never got around to seeing that we feed on the body of Christ. You might say the Lutherans said something like this, talk, 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 but not a body in sight. But uh, the body, if not in sight, was certainly available in Calvin's theology. The body of Christ is in heaven, and as the believer on earth receives the Lord's Supper, that believer receives the bread and the wine. But at the same time, the body and blood of Christ because of the work of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. That's why we call Calvin's view a view of the spiritual presence of Christ. Uh, that doesn't mean that um, Christ is just present in his spirit in the supper and not in his body, but that it's through the work of the Holy Spirit that uh, we are brought into nourishing relationship with the body of Christ.
And that works in, in two ways. Um, the Holy Spirit lifts up our hearts. The sursum corda, lift up your heart. It's part of the Calvinist liturgy in the Lord's Supper. The Holy Spirit lifts up our hearts to unite us with Christ in his fullness, including his body in heaven. So we're united to Christ. We feed on Christ. We feed on the body of Christ. But the body of Christ is not on earth. It's not in the elements. It is in heaven. And it's the work of the Holy Spirit to lift us up so that we are united to Christ. And the Spirit not only lifts us up, but at the same time, spiritually, brings Christ down to us in his body and in his blood. But it's not literal movement of the body of Christ. It's the value of our being nourished by feeding upon Christ that um, is accomplished by this uh, twofold work of the Holy Spirit, lifting up our hearts uniting us to Christ. See, you might say the problem for Luther was inaccessibility. Here's the body of Christ, but how can I get it? And the answer is through the Lord's Supper. The body of Christ is here. For Calvin, it's distance. Christ is in his body, not here. But the Holy Spirit is here. And the Holy Spirit can unite us in this twofold action bringing us up, bringing Christ down to nourish us through the Holy Spirit. I think the Lutherans uh, became a little agitated uh, with the Calvinists over this idea of the work of the Holy Spirit here. But uh, Calvin's answer would have been that the Holy Spirit is real. This is not imaginary. The Holy Spirit is a real person, part of the triune Godhead. And the Spirit can do what um, no one else can do. So we can be nourished by the, the body of Christ, even though that body is in heaven, because the Spirit can eliminate the distance. For Calvin, there is a twofold eating in the Lord's Supper. With the bread and wine, we eat with the mouth. But as we eat with the mouth, sometimes this is called Calvin's parallelism. As we eat with the mouth, we also eat with the mouth of faith the body and blood of Christ. So it's a twofold eating. As you take the Lord's Supper next time, remember you're chewing bread, you're drinking wine, and you are eating Christ in his body and blood by faith through the work of the Holy Spirit. Now that's Calvin's view of the Lord's Supper. I'm not sure that always comes out in our 
celebration of the Lord's Supper in reform circles or in the PCA, a lot of people tend more toward Zwingli. But um, the Calvinist view of the Lord's Supper is what I have just described. Did not necessarily have to say that Calvin is right and Zwingli is wrong, but we certainly should understand what Calvin is talking about. And if we do use Calvin's conception of the Lord's Supper, there's going to be much more emphasis on the actual eating of the body of Christ and what that means. It's a rather complex view. It's easier to understand the Catholic view or the Zwinglian view or even the Lutheran view. But uh, Calvin admits that it's complex and you know, after he's written all these pages on the Lord's Supper, he ends up by saying, but it's as far as I can go. And I don't really understand how it works. This is what I think happens because this is what I think the Bible teaches. But to explain it exactly and to understand it, I just can't. But I'd rather experience it than understand it anyway. Which almost seems to be a kind of a Calvinist mysticism there. But... Uh, there is a proper mysticism in Calvin when uh, words just have to stop. And um, we can say no more, but that doesn't mean that um, the truth has stopped or that the validity of the sacrament has stopped. It simply means that uh, our mental understanding ceases because we can't understand a mystery. And this is a mystery how we, in eating this bread and this wine, sitting in church, can actually be feeding upon the very body of Christ and be nourished by that and assured by that and strengthened by that. Okay, that's Calvin on the sacraments. I didn't think uh, I could do it, but uh, in an hour and 15 minutes. (laughs) I'm sure I left a lot of things unanswered, but at least that is a a roadmap through this material. We'll look at uh, civil government uh, next time. Thanks for listening to this worldwide classroom lecture from Covenant Theological Seminary. Find more Christ-centered teaching plus interviews and devotionals at livingchrist360.com.